heaven standing over you. This is the 11th chapter. I remember the 19th chapter, the 11th verse. And if you would, I want you to know that the door was already open once before. In fact, in the fourth chapter, the first verse, John had seen a very similar vision of a door that stood open from heaven. And then halfway through the book, he saw the temple door open. The temple that is in heaven had its door open. But this door, right here, this door serves a different purpose. You see, in 4 1, in the fourth chapter, the first verse, when the door was left open, the reason we find out why the door was left open is because the church had to be let in. Here, in the 19th chapter and the 11th verse, Christ and all of his saints, and possibly even his angels, are to be let out. And it leads me to say to you, you left the door you're a Cleveland Browns fan, you might be hearing a ring of Cleveland Dolphins. So I gotta tell you, I'm a Pittsburgh fan. And our biggest problem is renaming a stadium right now. You know, after sure is what they're gonna call it behind school. We don't know what to do with the contention bottles that pour every time there's a touchdown or we win a game. But my mind doesn't Cleveland have its problems. I'd ask myself the question, who let the dogs out of the post? Let the dogs in, but that's another story. Let's ask the question what is this passage all about? Make no mistake about what I read to you this morning. This is a big deal. This is, in fact, if you would, the climax of the entire biblical narrative. If you were to go back and look at your Bible, you might say, as you read through it, if you read it from historically and chronologically order, what well, had to be Noah and the ark, or maybe it had to be the Israelites led away, or maybe it had to be whatever you choose to let it be, even Jesus on the cross. Make no mistake, this is a climax of the story. Because we're about to see unleash something that begins in this chapter. It began back in the first verse of the 19th chapter of something very, very, very important. You hear about it. You've probably talked about it. But you don't hear much preaching about it. Maybe not everybody hear much preaching about it today. But I want to tell you what it is. The return of Christ. Now you might say, like I say quite a bit lately, the whole world's out of its mind. Right? I mean, have you, have you watched the news lately? I've quit. <laughs> I've shut it off. But I've been amazed at how many people will come up to me and they will say to me, is the beginning. They will what? Then the beginning. I know they told me this yesterday. Well, that doesn't matter what they told me. They're not say that. But everybody's got the view. What's happening right now? It's the end times. It's the return of Jesus. It's the tribulation. It's the millennium. And all these things. But this is really important what John has just been able to do. You know, when we go to the Slide is Revelation 19, 1 through 8. We're going to walk through this a verse at a time. Revelation 19 and verse 1. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness and righteousness. Speak for a minute. Yeah. You know, there was a white horse earlier in this passage. 
Revelation 6 2, there is a white horse, and that white horse had a rider and a bow and a crown, but it came out to conquer. That white horse was not Jesus. That white horse was a masquerade. That white horse was a fraud. That white horse was a counterfeit. The difference here is that there, in that white horse, there was an enemy disguised as a human person. In the passage that we're reading here this morning, Heaven's door is left open, and the first thing you see running out the door is this white horse with one sitting on it who is called Faithful and True. And he comes in righteousness to judge and to make war. I want to be sure that you understand what it means when it says that he is faithful and true. This is one of the white horse you can count on. This is one of the white horse, everything he's ever said, you can bank on it. This one on the white horse, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He will be with you to the very end. This one on the white horse is Jesus. And it says in righteousness, he comes to judge and to make war. Isn't it interesting that he comes on the white horse? When he went into Jerusalem, he rode in on the donkey, as Zechariah said he would. But here in this passage, he leaves heaven on that white horse. And he comes as one to bring real justice and real peace. This writer on the white horse judges and he makes glory and righteousness. You know, when I was in seminary, we used to debate for hours on end what a just war would look like. And my question is still the same now as what then. Is there such a thing as a just war? Well, it can't be unless Jesus is involved in it. He comes and he is just and he is true and he judges. As he goes, all the way back in Isaiah chapter 11, I want you to hear how Isaiah saw this Jesus, because this is what kind of painted the backdrop to what John writes here in this verse. In Isaiah 11, 3 to 5, it says, His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees or despise his speaks by what he hears, hears, but with righteousness. He'll judge the poor with equity for the meek of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. The breath of his lips, the wicked will be killed. Righteousness will be on his belt, and faithfulness will be in his loins. There's something different about this rider of the white horse. John, and, and this is so important, because when we see these words, he makes war, we get alarmed. What I want you to see is that John's not telling us that this Jesus is a general cat. He's not telling us this is, this is a general brand or general Eisenhower. He is telling us that there is something different. In fact, he's not telling us at all about a military conflict. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, that I, I would ask the gentlemen if they would go to the 12th verse. This is painting that you did this. His eyes are like flame, and on his hand are many diamonds. He has a face Jesus is talking to the seven churches of Asia. And in those passages where that's at, it talks about at least three times of him, of him having eyes that are like a flame. Oh, that's interesting. Why does that make a difference? Well, it makes a difference right here in this verse because John wants us to be sure that this is not a counterfeit. This is not a fraud. This is Jesus. It's the same one I talked about back there. This is the head of the church. It's the head of the body of Christ. This is Jesus himself. His eyes are 
like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Church, please be still and understand. It doesn't say he had a crown on his head. It says he had every crown on his head. That he is the king of all kingdoms that have ever existed, do exist, or will exist. This Jesus that comes on this white horse with the flaming eyes of fire has a crown on his head that has to play crowns with you in hell. And he has a victory on himself that no one knows but himself. I want you to stop and then understand it. And in antiquity, the name was something that showed power. And the only way you could share the power, the one that had that big thing, and here, this, this one that rides on the white horse has his name, and his power is holy in himself. He doesn't share it with anyone at this point. No one else has it. And here he comes, and in the 13th verse, it says, He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. I want you to see that if you, if you were to go back, John's writing from the perspective of the Old Testament. And he would tie this into Isaiah 63, where it talks about this messianic understanding of who the Messiah is. That is to say that the Messiah is this certain person. He's clothed in a robe that's dipped in blood. When you read it in Isaiah 63, there's a difference about this robe, though. The blood that is on the robe in Isaiah 63 is the blood of the enemy that have been destroyed. The blood that is on the robe here in Revelation 19 is far different. I'm going to tell you why. Think about what we've talked about so far. I looked and I saw that heaven's door was left open. And out of that door rides this white horse with what on it who is, who is the, the true and the justice and the right one. And he's clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood. If you have read along with me, they want to ask you to stand. If you notice what takes place, no war has taken place yet. You have to think that you Where did the blood come from? You see, back in Isaiah 63, it was from one that was a military conqueror, one that was out there fighting the battle. But this one that comes out of this door, his robe is dipped in blood, and no battle has yet taken place that we know of. That robe is not the blood of anyone else. That blood is the one that is the blood of the one that wears it himself. The victory that this Messiah will win is not over any empire, any army, it is not over any uh, king, it is not a conquest of any geographical location. This one that rides out of heaven in Revelation 19, 13, his world is dipped in blood because of his blood. The victory that he wins is a victory over the greatest enemy that all of us have ever had to face. That sin itself. If you were to jump down to Revelation, uh, the 15th verse, just two verses from this, you would note that he brings a sword, but it's not in his hand, it's coming out of his mouth. He shuts down the nations, not with a physical army, but with the word that flows from his mouth. I want you to just stop for a minute, laugh and scholars, and think about and it's going to be someone John. Claim because John is right to be working, but I can't connect How to it. How it begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. This 
one that comes. Look at what it says. He's, his name by which he is called is the Word of God. Remember, this one is faithful and true. The one that you can depend on for everything he's ever said. You can depend upon it. You can count upon it. His word is good. He is going to conquer not just because he died for our sins, but because he's God and all the truth flows from him. Well, he wouldn't have working first. And the armies of heaven, who arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him. I'm about to talk about something that's kind of coming. Yeah. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Some have speculated that this army that comes with him are the angels of God. The wings are the queen. That will stop and have you think about something for a minute. Soon does. They'll sink. The reason we have feet now. The reason you guys say this, you guys are made now. My point this morning is this church. Yeah, they're arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, but I'm not too sure it's these angels. You say, but, but, but y'all, who is it then? Church, it's the Old Testament saints. It's the New Testament church. It's you and me if we die in this life uh, in Christ. It is all of those. But it's only one to lose your mind. No, go to Revelation. Or not Revelation, First Thessalonians 4. It says there that the trumpet will sound and the Lord Himself will descend, and He will bring with Him those that have died in Him. Talking about the return of the Lord. And the reason their robes are white and they're very pure as well is because His robe is soaked in blood. Because my sins have been covered by His shed blood. Because my sins have been covered by the victory that He has won. Because your sins have been covered by the victory that Christ has won. The only way we can stand and ride out with Him in the battle against the last great enemy that will be destroyed. Go to Poison the 15th worship book. I really can't stand to go to the 15th? From his down come the sharp sword with which he strike down the nations. He, he said 15. Three things. I'm kind of struggling with one I'm going to admit, but you see, and that is the sword in his mouth. But it's pretty important. I want you to be very sure of this. Christ wins because of his word, not because of any superior fighting skill. There have been those that have speculated, you know. This whole thing in Revelation 19 is some big battle where they raise the queen of weapons of the world and this army gets and all these things you're up to listen. Out of his mouth comes the sword of anger. Maybe you'll let that make for a great movie. That's probably the reason we have trouble with the concept of in the beginning. God said, let there be. How did everything we see? How did this earth, how did the universe come into existence? By his word. This is God, church. This is God. This is not Joel. This is not you. This is not some human. This is the God of the ages and what he says. Makes a difference, church. Go to 
On your robe and on his thigh, he has a name, King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I just want you to imagine this, this, this stamp upon his thigh that everybody can see that cannot be hidden as he's mounted that horse, and it says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's no mistake who it is. It's Jesus. Seventeen verse. And I'm going to clump together here. You'll see on your screen 17 and 18 verses together. I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice and called upon the bird to fly overhead. Come, gather the supper of God, and eat the flesh of kings, of captains, of mighty men, of horses, and the flesh, and all men, free and slaves, small and great. He assured a great deal of the revelation is symbolic. Said something now in lower commands. But be assured that the battle has taken place and everything is laid waste. Then if you move to the 19th and 21st verses, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured with a false prophet. Who in his presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who received the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burned with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You know what you want to do as we jump to this great battle? You want to, you want to see this. This great thing out of this field that takes place that will bring to consummation everything that's ever occurred in history. I want you to rethink it for a minute. I want you to look real close. The beast and the kings of the earth that were gathered to make war with him. He was sitting on the horse against the army. Look at that 20th verse here. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. These two were thrown in the lake of fire and burned with sulfur. What I want you to see, church, is that there's really no big battle here. The beast and the one along with him and his words are simply destroyed. There's really not this big battle. What the, the writer wants us to see is the destruction of all things evil, all things. The reason I can say that is because if you were to go back to the fifth chapter of Revelation, you'll see that God has already won. There used to be a guy that they used to come to my home church. His name was Jim Sunderworth. He was down in Rodgers, down in Florida. And he would sing when these guys come along and sing to the churches. And he had this song that I used to really like. It's kind of recording now in the fashion. But the song went like this. We win, we win, hallelujah, hallelujah, we win. I ran back and forth. And we win. You see, what's being written here in Revelation 19 is very simple. This is God. The end has come. He speaks and it is. And you don't need tanks and you don't need all this stuff. What you need to understand is that, that God's going to win those people. And in fact, he already did because his robe was changed into blood when he shed it upon no battle actually won. You see, Satan's been cast out, Satan's been defeated by the blood of the Lamb, who we know is Jesus. If you were to go into the 
deeper study in the book of Revelation, you find that there's really this one big mass that's described. I don't have to be right. You can prove me wrong. But what I do know for sure is this. When Jesus went to the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago, the one man in the family, the one man in the family that was decisive in Jesus shedding blood for our sins. St. Joel always is true that evil is seen in history, people like Nero, people like Hitler, people like Idi Amin, remember him? And there's still evil in the world. But Satan had a death blow dealt to him at the cross. Do you remember what Jesus said when he was going to the cross? And what have done, he said a couple of things about it. Pay attention to. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. What he was saying was, as, as I go to the cross, this is his demise. In John 16, he said this, because the ruler of this world is about to be judged. And you would speak up and say, well, the judgment, there's still evil. Jesus died on the cross. Things still are happening that are bad. Yeah, that's true. Peter even wrote this, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Stay firm in your faith. And know that the same kind of suffering is being experienced by your brothers and sisters around the world. That's 1 Peter 5, 89. And for a while, God's purposes are being finished up and Satan is still on the loose. But it's not an indication that Satan wins. Rather, it's an indication that he's sent. You see him at work in the worst kind of way. Just remember this. He's working on borrowed time. Yesterday, I went on a motorcycle ride. I left early because it was my mother-in-law's birthday. And I'm just that kind of guy that wants to be at his mother-in-law's birthday party. Somebody asked me, are your grandchildren going to be at the birthday party? And I said, but they aren't because we didn't home they weren't. I got home. I found out that in fact Emma was going to be at the birthday party. And that Easton was going to be going with us to the birthday party. So my my wife had arranged for the other grandparents the other grandparents. To, 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 to pick up Easton, and then after the party, when we got home, he would be picked up at our house by now. Supposed to be there weekend at Easton. And as we're coming home, we're just about five minutes from home, we got a phone call from them, and they said, hey, we're in the area, we're going to swing by, we'll be there in 10 minutes. And when I walked in the house, that dear little child that I love and sometimes give up my last time, Say, Papa, can I play the Xbox? Which I said, no. And he said, Papa, can I get to the Xbox? I said, no. He said, Papa, can I get out and play with the organ? I said, no. He said, Papa, can I get out the trumpet? I said, no. He said, can I get out the violin? I said, no. He said, can I get out the Lincoln Laws? I said, he said, for crying out loud. 
You've got five minutes to your grandparents get here. Why was he in such a hurry? So because he knew he had five minutes, right? I'll tell you something about safe. <clears throat> Probably the worst illustration of the world. I guess we waited my grandfather to wait. But anyway, you're not laughing. I think it's funny. <laughs> Satan knows his time is short. Satan knows his time is short. He knows he's about to be picked up in the world. He knows it's coming. As much as he can, but time that's left. There's only five minutes to get it all done. His five minutes are always up. His moment of fame is come and gone. Not only is his time almost gone, symbolically, he's a dead man walking. Because the rider on the board is white horse. Not in some drawn-out mountain battlefield or uh, in the Middle East somewhere tomorrow or next year. Or on a hillside outside of the show. Satan's downfall next year is that we can get prideful. Not because of anything he moved out of eyes, but because of all that Jesus did. He won't make a bad point as he died on the cross for our sins. Those who discuss the great Armageddon. They're correct in one sense, but they're also probably over 500, 400 in others. Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour of Christ's return, not even himself. To focus on it, to deduce it, to calculate it, to go through the imaginations that imaginations of folks do to try to figure that out, I think it's technically what it's done. But to be informed, you've got to temper it with what Jesus has said. Look for the time and the season. Pay attention to the weather, if you would. But don't get so wrapped up in it that you just not know. Then raise it to my bottom line. Well, we need to look for that last slide. Plan for today, but pack for tomorrow. Say, what do you mean by that, Joe? Who left the door open? Thing. But I don't like it when my feet touch the bottom, so I have to have, you know, 
where was your that kind of thing? One of the things I do when we pack up, every time we pack up, is I will take our spring shoes, put them on the night before we leave, to dry out, so that I can put them into a bag and put them in the camper the next time. And you know, inevitably, this summer, I had pulled out of every campsite and left our shoes at the campsite. And so, inevitably, every time we go to camp again, we are stopping at Target and Walmart or somewhere to buy a pair of these shoes that go in your feet because I'm afraid they'll step out of that camp again. Church, you got a plan for today. You got a plan for today. Got to be ready for tomorrow. You got a plan for the fact that you may meet someone today that knows about the love of Christ. You got to be ready in His Word. You got to be prepared for what comes next. But you got to not dwell on the fact that this may go on just a few days more. But if it does, you got to be prepared for that. What do you plan for today? Is the past the past? If you've not yet accepted Christ for yourself, let me assure you on the day that the door is left open in heaven, and the one on the white horse comes riding out with his robe dipped in blood. At that point, it will be far too late to tell you today. The best thing you could do would be to plan for the day that passes tomorrow. It would be to say, I am not a Bible scholar, and I am not I do know that I can't do this myself. And I do know that it's a battle on a daily basis. But I also know that one of these special days is going to come around back. And I would invite that one whose blood has been shed to drive the blood that's been shed for you on Christ to win the battle for my sake. I would ask him to come and be in my encampment today. Because while I can't control what happens I know that he died for me. Church, there's enough grace. There's enough grace in Jesus Christ that carries tomorrow. But today could be the day that you leave your father. What about you now? Amen. I may have all that stuff about the end times all wrong. I may get to heaven. Jesus says to me, you don't know. You weren't very very accountable at that, he said. You weren't very steadfast in what you said. The church wants to say something. I think I think God's grace is sufficient. And I think that what he cares about most is that you and I know him and we are ready for him. Not that we've got the whole scheme in figured out. Would you gentlemen shoot that next?